Let me invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 3 this morning. Revelation chapter 3. If you find a church that has been blessed numerically and financially, you may not find a church that has been blessed by God. There are all sorts of churches that are out there that believe they are receiving God's blessing because they are growing in number and they're growing in 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 uh, finances as well. But you know of lots of ministries, probably personally, that are financially wealthy and yet do not have God's blessing. In fact, the way that Christ evaluates the church has little to do with the size of the church. We saw that last week with the church at Philadelphia. Although you are poor, you are small, you are of very little worth in the eyes of the world, yet you are rich spiritually. Christ's evaluation is based not so much on numbers or on finances, but really on what the Christians are doing in the church. How they are living. Are they moving toward holiness? And so we need to recognize that the most important thing in a church is to make sure that we're matching up to what God expects of us to give our best with regard to our responsibilities in the church. And so that requires that we have to evaluate our own hearts, that we are not loving sin over God, that we are pursuing His purposes in our lives and in our church. This church here that we're going to look at is the final of the seven churches that Christ has John write a letter to, the beginning of Revelation, Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And there's not a whole lot of uh, good things to say about this church at Laodicea. Let's read about this. This is the message from Jesus Christ given to the messenger of the church, beginning in chapter 3 with verse 14. We'll read to the end of the chapter. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor, excuse me, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and he will dine with him, and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As a church, we must repent of our sin because repentance is the evidence of our position in Christ. And that's the message that Jesus gives to this church. 
You must be zealous and repent of your sin. This church that we see here is the church at Laodicea. We see at the beginning of verse 14. It's actually sent to the angel of the church of Laodicea, which we understand is the messenger of the church, some representative that comes from the church at Laodicea to the island of Patmos where John receives this vision from God, this vision which basically is written down for us as the book of Revelation. He hands it on to these seven messengers from these seven churches and they're responsible to take it back to their church and then uh, to the churches at large. This letter would later on spread to, to even us after many centuries. So this messenger from the church of Laodicea comes and he receives this specific letter to Laodicea, but it's not simply these verses here, verses 14 through 22. It includes the entire book of Revelation. This city was about 45 miles southeast of Philadelphia, which was the last city we looked at. Philadelphia was a city in modern Turkey, and it's about 100 miles east, Laodicea is, of Ephesus. It was probably the wealthiest city in the area at that time. It was known for three primary industries. First, banking. They were, a, they were the hub of financial uh, power. People would come from, from lots of different areas in order to, to receive loans or to, um, to sell goods because there was lots of, of financial wealth in this city. The second industry that, that uh, Laodicea was known for was textiles. Specifically, a rare wool, a, a black wool. They would take this wool from the black sheep and it would be about as black as you can get and they would, they would uh, make it into garments. And so, because it was a rare uh, uh, garment, people would come from, from all different areas and pay large amounts of money in order to get this type of garment. And then thirdly, they were known for their medicine. They were known for uh, specifically a a temple that they had, that, that a, an eye salve that they sold, and also an ear salve that you would put on your eyes or on your ears to cause or to uh, to overcome some eye or ear problems. And so people would come from all around to do that and pay large amounts of money for that as well. This church here in Laodicea was formed probably during Paul's time in Ephesus. He was in Ephesus, to remember, for three years, which is 100 miles east of here. And um, or, or west of, of, of Laodicea, excuse me. And so either Paul came to Laodicea to start this church or he sent a representative from Ephesus, likely, and, and had him start this church here in Laodicea. Whatever the case, the church is up and running. It is uh, trying to do its best to, to please God, but as we're, we'll see, they fall well short. So this letter is directed to the church at Laodicea. But as we've noted each time, it's also directed to all churches of all time, including us. Look at verse 22. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not just the church at Laodicea. Not just these seven churches, but to the churches. Something that should be passed down to to all churches of all time. And so we need to look at this church, this message to this church, and see where we need to to change. The second thing we want to look at is Christ's description. Christ describes Himself in each of these seven letters. And uh, we see that at the end of verse 14. 
This is the person who's writing this letter. It says, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. And that's why if you have a red letter Bible, these words are all in red because these are letters from Jesus Christ. These are words from Jesus Christ. He calls himself first the Amen. Turn to Isaiah 65 with me. Isaiah 65. What does Jesus mean when He calls Himself the Amen? This is a word that's actually been carried over from the Hebrew language. Um, Our word Amen comes from the Greek word Amen, which is spelled almost identically as our word. They have different letters, obviously, but but it's uh, it's very similar to the Greek word. And the Greek word Amen comes from the Hebrew word Amen. And, uh, and we'll see this here in chapter 65 of Isaiah, verse 16. <clears throat> because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth, and he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hidden from my sight. Now, we didn't see the word amen in that verse, but which, which word in that verse do you think... Is trans what is the word Amen? It's translated as something else. Which word do you think? It is a word that's actually repeated twice, and it describes God. It is the God of, we could say, the Amen, the God of truth. In fact, when we say Amen, what we're saying at the end of a of a prayer, we often do that is we're saying this is truth, or so be it. Let this be true. And that's exactly what Amen means. Jesus said uh, that, that, that we ought to make our yeses yes and our noes no. And, and the idea there is that we should be people of truth. Turn back to Revelation chapter 3. Because what we, we find here is that, that God in Isaiah is called the God of the Amen. The God of truth. Now what Jesus is saying here in chapter 3 of Revelation verse 14, He's saying, I am the Amen. I am, he could say in, in John 14, 6, we could translate it this way. I am the way, the amen, and the life. Okay, he's saying, I am the truth. I am represented by the truth. And we can also see from that, since God is called the amen in Isaiah, then we can also see that Jesus is calling himself God. I am God. The second thing that he claims about himself is that he is the faithful and true witness. Okay, I am the truth, the, the Amen, and I'm also the faithful and true witness. In chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus had called Himself the faithful witness. That, that We understand from that that He will be an everlasting testimony about the truth of God. And this comes from Psalm chapter 89. And so these three names together, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, show the absolute integrity of our Savior. That He is a witness to, to the divine revelation, the revelation that comes from God, and we can be absolutely certain that He is true. We don't have to fear that, that Christ will ever go against what He has said because He is absolutely trustworthy. The third thing that He claims about Himself, first, the Amen, second, the faithful and true witness, third, see that in verse 14, the beginning of the creation of God. Turn back to Psalm chapter 89 with me. 
Psalm chapter 89, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, what, what does this phrase mean? Does this mean that Jesus was created? Does this mean that He was the first of the creation as if God created Jesus and then He created everything else? What does it mean that Jesus is the beginning of the creation of God? I hope what you answered to that was no, that cannot be the case because Jesus is the Creator according to John chapter 1, verse 3. That all things were created by Him and without Him there was nothing made that has been made. So He is the Creator. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 say the same thing. That He is the, the image of the invisible Creator. He's the, he's the firstborn of all creation. What does this mean though? He's the beginning of creation. Chapter 89, verse 27. Notice what God promises to David, His servant. He says, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Okay, so what is God saying about David when He's calling David His firstborn? Is He saying that He's going to bring David into existence? David is, is the one that's receiving this message from God. So it's not that. David already exists. What is He saying? If you know anything about Israel's history, you know that David would be the preeminent one, that he would be rise to a place of, uh, of preeminence, of superiority over Israel, over God's people. So this is what God is saying. The firstborn is the preeminent, the supreme one. So when, when, when Jesus calls Himself the beginning of the creation of God, what He's saying is similar to what He's called in other parts of Scripture the firstborn of all creation, which simply means the preeminent one, the supreme one. That of all the things that, that, that were created, Jesus reigns over them all. It's similar to the phrase that we looked at in, earlier in Revelation, the Alpha and the Omega. He's called in other places the first and the last. That, that He is the originator of, the, the source of all creation because He is God. And so our response to, to Him as Creator, you can turn back to Revelation. Our response to Him is that we should obey Him. I am the truth. Okay, So you can trust Me. I am the faithful and, and true witness. Okay, So I am honorable. I am a man of integrity. But also... I am over all creation. I am supreme over it all. And so, not only can I be trusted, but I must be trusted. Because I am the Creator. I am sovereign over all. And that means I will come and judge those who do not repent. So you must obey Me. Now, if you've been filling out your chart throughout this these seven letters, you've filled out the name of the church here, Laodicea, then Christ's description, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of the creation of God. And the next blank, I think, is commendation. How does God commend this church? And I hope, as you're going through, you didn't find anything. It should be blank on your sheet. That's because Christ has nothing good to say about this church. And so we move to the condemnation in verses 15-17. through 17. The condemnation. That is what He reproves them about. What their problem is. And we can summarize their condemnation by simply saying that they have a useless and blind religion. They have a useless and blind religion. We see their useless religion in verses 15 and 16. 
I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Why do I say that this is a useless religion? The answer comes in understanding what it means in verse 15 that they are neither cold nor hot. What does that mean? Look at verse 16 because we get clued in to what that means. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold. Okay, that phrase neither hot nor cold really works as an appositional phrase which just means that it's saying the same thing as what was just said. I, uh, so because you are lukewarm, that is, you are neither hot nor cold. Okay, so what does it mean to be neither hot nor cold? It means to be lukewarm at the very, uh, at the most basic level. It means to be lukewarm. So we could read these verses like this. I know your deeds that you are lukewarm. I wish you were not lukewarm, but because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. As we'll see, what it means, when Jesus says, I'll spit you out of my mouth, he literally is saying, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I don't want you to be in there. It's not a pretty picture because you have been lukewarm. So we see that as a negative thing spiritually. But in order for us to understand what this means exactly, we need to understand the meaning of these terms cold and hot. Most people understand that this simply means, okay, hot spiritually that we're on fire for Christ, that we're doing good things for God, that we're, we're valuable to Him, that we're passionate about spiritual things. And then cold means that we are a Christian, but we're, we're rejecting spiritual truths. We've become hostile to God, indifferent. Okay, so what, and, and so God doesn't want us there really hot, and he, or He does want us there. And then this other one is the other... Side, but then in the middle is this lukewarm, which has just become an indifference. You don't care about whether being hot or cold. So on the one side you have hot being uh, on fire for God or, or uh, passionate about God and the spiritual things. And the other side, hostile towards God. And in the middle is this lukewarm, indifferent feeling. But the problem is that that argument, which is probably the argument that you've heard and the one that I actually heard much growing up, the problem with that argument is in verse 15. Look at the end of the verse. What does Jesus say there? I wish that you were cold or hot. Okay, we could see if hot meant passionate about spiritual things, that's right, Jesus does wish that we were that. But would Jesus ever wish that we were cold spiritually in the sense that we're hostile toward God? So I don't buy that argument that this uh, this means that these are states of spirituality. In other, in other words, that as Christians we can be cold, we can be lukewarm, and we can be hot. Jesus doesn't want us to be cold spiritually. And so there has to be another explanation. To understand what these things mean, I think we need to understand a little bit more about what is going on in the city of Laodicea. Laodicea uh, did not have its own water supply. Actually, the closest water supply they had was the Lycus River, and this was very muddy and undrinkable water. And so they had to have water, we could say piped in. It actually came through aqueducts. And so uh, the nearest spring was actually a hot spring from Hierapolis, which is about five miles away. And they had an aqueduct that would come into the city. 
it would begin at the hot springs, but by the time it got there, guess what temperature it was? It's lukewarm. The other spring that they had nearby was in Colossae. This was a cold water spring. And the cold water would be sent in through the aqueducts, and by the time it got to Laodicea, again, it was lukewarm. So you have both the hot water coming in and the cold water coming in, and, and both of them from different sources come in, and by the time they get to the city, they're lukewarm. So now that you, you, you understand a little bit more about that, do you, do you see what Jesus is saying here? That, that both of those types of water, both of those temperatures of water actually have value. See, cold water, we all know, has value. It actually refreshes us on a scorchingly hot day. And so we want cold water. But what happens was when passers-by would come into the city of Laodicea and grab a drink from the aqueduct, they would drink it and it would be lukewarm or they'd spit it out of their mouths. It's disgusting. We don't want lukewarm water on a scorchingly hot day. The other advantage or the other benefit, the usefulness of the water, was the hot water. Hot water could be used for medicinal purposes or perhaps used hot water this morning perhaps flavored with some coffee or some other type of tea or something, you use it on cold days or perhaps just out of habit. You use hot water. There's value to that, right? But not to lukewarm water. And So what Jesus is saying here is actually that hot water and cold water are both, both useful. And so I wish you were useful like hot water or useful like cold water. That's what he's saying in verse 15. But because you're not, you're neither one of those. You're not useful in any way. You've actually become unuseful to me. So I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I don't want to swallow you. Okay. So what Jesus is not saying is, I want you to be cold spiritually. He's saying, no, I want you to be cold in the sense that you're useful to me. But if you're not, then you've become lukewarm and I will spit you out of my mouth. That is, I will judge you and finally reject you. So their religion, what Jesus is saying, verses 15 and 16, your religion has become useless. But not only that, their religion has become blind, verse 17. Your religion has become blind because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. We could ask, verses 15 and 16, alright, what makes them Useless. What is it that makes them lukewarm spiritually? The answer would be found in verse 17. Because you say, based on your evaluation, you say that you are rich, you are wealthy, and that you have need of nothing. There's a problem here. You think that you are receiving God's blessing, but let me show you what true riches are. And the sad part about this church is they thought they were in good standing with God. They thought they were receiving God's blessing, but they didn't know that they were actually doing the opposite. Look at, look again at the end of the verse, verse 17. And you do not know. They're cruising along in the spiritual life trying to trying to do what they think is pleasing to God. And they think they are pleasing to God. If someone else asked them, What's your secret? They say, we're in good standing before God. We're receiving all these blessings. And they would point to all these different programs and different things that they're involved in. And Jesus is saying, you don't even know. You're not rich spiritually. 
In fact, you're poor. You're wretched. You're miserable. You're blind. And you're naked. Christ's evaluation is what matters most here. It's not their own personal evaluation of themselves. Christ was going to be the one who would judge them, who would determine whether they were right or wrong. And so He evaluates them at the end of verse 17 that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Their spiritual condition was the exact opposite of what they were supposed to be. It was very different from Philadelphia who were seen as poor, but Jesus says, but yet you are rich. And so Jesus gives this long list of things that describe them which are not very pleasant descriptions. And so, because there's no commendation, nothing to commend them about, He moves in verses 18-21 through to correct them. The correction of the Savior, verses 18-21. through He shows them here what true religion is. True religion. True religion is faith in Christ and repentance a, a repentance from sin. We see the faith in Christ in verse 18 and verse 20. I advise you, Jesus says, to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus gives them advice for how to overcome their condition. There's three things that they need to do. They need to buy three things from Him. First, Gold refined by fire. They needed to receive true riches. Something that would not burn up. They had plenty of earthly goods and finances, but those will do them nothing when they stand before the Father and, and give a, a, um, an accounting of how they lived their life as a church. You see, they needed something that they could not buy. And so Jesus really... Uh, uses a, a, a play on words here. They're, they're rich. You're rich in your banking industry, but you actually need something that you can't buy. And so you need to come to me. And I'm not, I'm not going to take your currency. You need to buy something from me that will last longer than what you have built up. And that's why he says there at the beginning of the verse, that you may become rich. That you're the true riches lie in Me. You need to come to Me. Secondly, they needed to buy from Him white garments. White garments. Remember, in their city, they would make this, these rare garments of black wool. And so Christ is saying that, that that's not what you need. Okay, that, that may be a very important part of your industry, but what you need from Me is a white garment which only God can supply so that you will be able to clothe yourself on that day. Stand before Me on the day of judgment, enrobed in righteousness. That only comes from God. It's the opposite of being what you are. Even though you have these pretty black garments made of this rare wool, you are actually... Remember what he said in verse 17? You are naked. You need to clothe your nakedness. And the way that you do that is by putting on My white garment. The third thing that they needed to buy is found at the end of verse 18. And that is this eye salve. Remember in the temple there at Asclepios in Laodicea, there was this medical school that had this advanced treatment for eye problems. You would take this eye salve and rub it on your eyes and the problem over time would go away. 
And what Jesus is saying is that that's all good, but what you need is my eye salve. You need to, to be able to have spiritual insight. Remember what he called them in verse 17? That you are poor and blind. Another play on words for what's going on in their city. You think you have all the advancements when it comes to medical technology, but, but actually you're blind as a church. And you need to buy ISAF from me so that you can see spiritually, so that your eyes will be opened. And then he gives them a promise. So he begins with this exhortation, buy these three things from me. Then he follows with a promise in verse 20. We'll come back to verse 19, but look at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. We often interpret this to mean that Jesus is knocking on the doors of our hearts. In fact, we often use the language that Jesus needs to come into our hearts, which is not really biblical language. It's probably not referring to Jesus standing on the door of our hearts and knocking. It's probably also not referring to Jesus standing at the door of the kingdom waiting for us to come into, or on the outside, we're on the outside waiting to come in. He's knocking so that we'll come into his kingdom. It's probably not that either. Remember who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to the church at Laodicea. And so what he's saying here is pretty striking when you think about it. He's likely referring to the door of the church. It's simply amazing that that Christ seems to be portraying himself as standing outside of the church that bears his name. The one that he bought with his blood. These professing believers in Laodicea are unwilling to repent and to respond in saving faith to the gospel. And, and Jesus is saying, I'm knocking at the door of your church. You think you got it all figured out inside there, but, but you're poor and blind and naked. And I'm not in your midst right now. But I'm standing here knocking, and if you'll let me in, I'll come and dine with you. If you'll come and buy these things from me, then I'm going to give you great spiritual blessing. And let me tell you something. I will not knock forever. There will come a time when the knocking will stop. And when I will no longer knock as someone who wants to come in and be part of your fellowship or as you allowing me into your fellowship, but I will come as a judge. I will come to bring judgment on you. And so you need to repent. And that's exactly what he says in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Who is Jesus talking about here? It seems as if, okay, if you've been following along throughout this time, it seems as if Jesus is talking to unbelievers in this church. And so we could ask the question beginning in verse 19, why would Jesus reprove those why would he talk about reproving those whom he loves? Are we talking about believers here or unbelievers? And I like the way that Dr. Doran explains this first. Sometimes when you ask the wrong question, you get the wrong answer. The question is not are they believers or unbelievers? We could debate all day as to who we're talking about. But that's the wrong question. The, what, what Jesus is doing is saying, you need to repent. 
you need to be zealous for Me. Because if you repent and if you are zealous for Me, then you will have proven that you are loved by Me. Because I discipline those whom I love. If you're just ignoring Me and walking away, if you're going on with your business without having Me as a part of it, then that's a problem. That indicates where you are spiritually. See, Jesus doesn't say, okay, all you unbelievers in the church, you're poor, blind, and naked. You need to buy from me all these things. Now I want to turn to the righteous remnant within the church. Okay, you righteous people. I'm showing my love to you because I'm, I'm disciplining you. He's saying to the whole church. He hasn't stopped talking to the entire church. You as a church are poor and blind and naked, he says. And you need to repent as a church. Now we recognize that we can't repent for other people, but, but the idea is that we need to be making sure that as a whole that we're not loving sin more than we're loving Christ. And so the command is very clear at the end of verse 19. Be zealous and repent. And if we are, the result, the reward, we could say, the conqueror's reward is found in verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. Now, I want you to notice here that there are two thrones being talked about here. What are the two thrones? Okay, Christ, where is He sitting right now? On God's throne. You see that in verse 21? As I also came, overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. We're talking about God's throne. But there also is another throne where Jesus is not sitting right now. And this is what he talks about at the beginning of the verse. I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. Do you realize that Jesus is not sitting on his throne right now? That throne will be occupied by him one day, but it is not right now. And the throne that, that Jesus is talking about, his throne is the throne that's talked about in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and his name will be Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. You, you're familiar with that verse. Then verse 7 says this, There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. This is talking about the millennial kingdom, the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ as king, followed by His eternal reign as king. And the throne that He will occupy during that time is called the throne of David. It is a throne that was set apart by God for His Son eventually to reign in that throne forever. How would David's line continue forever and ever? Would he continually have children throughout all of eternity? Descendants being born to Him? No. It's because the Eternal One will sit on His throne, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying this, in the millennium, I will reign on My throne. But notice the promise here. This is incredible if you think about it. Verse 21, He who overcomes, you and me, if we overcome, here's what we get. I will grant to Him to sit down with Me on My throne. He's not going to say, I'm just going to give you a ride on My lap for a little while. Check it out. See what it's like to sit on this big throne. No, you're actually going to reign with Christ. 
We know that because of chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. Jesus is talking about the authority that he's going to allow us to have over the nations. As church saints, we will rule with Christ in the millennium. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 says, If we endure, okay, similar to the idea of overcoming, if we overcome, if we endure, we will also reign with Him. You see, the firstborn of all creation, the supreme one over all creation, is, is ruler over all. He, he is supreme over all. And yet that one, the one who is preeminent, is going to do this, which is so amazing. He's going to allow those who were useless, those who were, were going to be spit out of His mouth if they hadn't repented, He's going to offer them the throne, the authority that He alone deserves if they repent. So here's the message for us. Be zealous and repent. Make sure that we are not loving our sin more than we are loving our Savior. Throughout history, and even in our day, local churches have always been influenced negatively by culture, much like this church at Laodicea. And so we must carefully guard ourselves against being squeezed into the mold of the culture. These seven letters serve as warnings for us. Ephesus, the, the letter to Ephesus is a warning against the danger of losing our first love. The letter to Smyrna is a warning against the danger of fearing suffering. Pergamum, the danger of compromising doc, doctrine. We have to make sure that we're fundamental in our faith. Thyatira, a warning against the danger of compromising morally. Sardis, the fifth church, warning against the danger of spiritual deadness. That, that we are all polished on the outside. We, we look like a really put-together group of believers. And yet on the inside, we're like the Pharisees. We're full of dead men's bones. We're like rotted sepulchers. And then the church at Philadelphia, the warning against the danger of not persevering, of falling away. And then the, the warning in this letter to the Laodiceans against the danger of lukewarmness. And the message in all of these, we could summarize the whole thing by saying if we do not heed the warnings that God, that Christ has given us, then we will not escape the judgments that you're going to read about and learn about in the next several weeks, chapters 4-19. through 19. You will not escape those judgments. You may escape the tribulation judgments if the tribulation happens after your death, but you will not escape the final judgment. And so the message is that we need to heed the warnings. If we don't, we'll not escape judgment. If we do, then we'll skip on ahead to chapters 20-22, through 22, which is the, the chapters that express the privileges of, of knowing God, the blessings that come after Christ's return. Remember the, the, the purpose of the book or, or the blessing that comes on those who hear the words of my prophecy and obey them and heed them. You see, the most important thing that Christ is looking for in our lives and in our church 
is not numeric growth. It's not financial growth. It's spiritual growth. Not one time in these two chapters did Jesus ever say, you need to have better programs. Not one time did He say, you're missing something. You're missing one of these programs. And if you had that, then more people would come and then I'd be more happy with you. Not one time did He say, you need to get out there and, and, and attract more people somehow. You need to have more exciting events. What was His focus in these two chapters? It was on the individual spiritual lives of the people who are residing in those churches. And, and I would suggest to you that the thing that God wants most in our church is not more people. It's not more programs. Those can be good things. He wants you and I to grow spiritually. And so we need to ask ourselves, are we repenting of sin? Are we turning from sin? That's what repentance means. Are we turning from sin individually and as a church? Or are we loving it more and more? Are we ignoring the consequences that come from it? The most important thing is that we honor God because it is His church. And so our goal is not to fill the pews. That would be great. But our highest goal is to know God and to advance in our lives spiritually. Not one time in Paul's epistles is he going to commend believers or command believers to fill up the churches. Okay, you got this building. Just fill it up. That's not what's important. That's not what's most important. We should certainly not be unconcerned about the lost. I'm not suggesting that. You know that. But our most, our highest concern should be our own spiritual lives. That we are advancing spiritually. That, that we are becoming more and more holy. Because without holiness, no one, no one, no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12.14 So if you're not becoming holy, then like these people, you are poor, miserable, naked, and blind. May God have mercy upon us so that we can persevere until His coming. And when He comes, it will be clear who is the judge of all and who deserves all the worship. We don't have to wait until that time. Let's worship Him as He deserves right now. Let's pray. Father, when we look at warning, warning passages in the Scripture, it certainly jolts us. It shocks us in many ways. But we understand that You use warning passages to help draw us closer to Yourself. That the reason that we are not near You right now is because we've drawn away from You. We've loved our sin more than we've loved You. And so we need warning passages like this at times to shock our system to not allow us to, to, to become in love with the things of this world. To not enjoy our sin more than we enjoy fellowship with You and seeing You fully and finally one day. So we thank You for the message that was originally given to the church at Laodicea and we pray that You'd help our church to reflect honestly about ourselves and, and about each of our own hearts individually, that we would work hard
to pursue holiness as You pursue us as sinners. We recognize that, that, that You are in control of all these things and that You will ultimately accomplish Your purpose in, in those whom You have saved. But we certainly have a responsibility to persevere no matter what comes our way, no matter what kind of, of struggle comes. May we never be satisfied with the status quo. May we never be satisfied with our lives spiritually. Satisfied, yes, that You are in control and that You have saved us, but, but never satisfied in the sense that we're always desiring to grow more like Jesus Christ. Never, never complacent or apathetic, like we have nothing left to do spiritually. And that church is only designed for other people. But may You help us to regularly search our own hearts and see, as Mike read earlier, if there be any wicked way in us so that You will lead us in the everlasting way. Help us, Lord, we pray. We need Your Spirit to enlighten us and to reveal to us the wickedness that is in our hearts so that we can allow it to come to the surface and we can deal with it. Because ultimately, that is less, less fearful than falling into the hands of an angry God. And we want to, to be honoring to You in all that we do because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.